you're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Well, Friday night, uh, Holt family got to go to, I'm sorry, disclaimer, listen, I've got three kids. They're all under the age of four right now. One's about to be five, but it just means I talk about my kids a lot because they're just like, I don't have a lot going on, okay? So I'm just talking about my kids. But Friday night, we, whole family, got to go to Bears' inaugural soccer game. And a little scouting report for you all. We are stacked. (laughs) We've got a a four-year-old little girl who scored seven goals in one game. That was 15 minutes. She scored seven goals. She played already for a year, so we, you know, transfer portal. But the team is stacked. Um, this was Bear's first time playing soccer, so he's, he's figuring it out. Um, he, he essentially just runs along in the herd of other children. Like, they all clump together and chase after the ball or chase after other things. No one knows what's going on in four-year-old soccer. It's awesome. Um, And I've, you know, got to watch it because Bayer, right now, a week in, he is more entertained by running around the field and looking over his shoulder like this at his shadow that's following after him than he is concerned about the ball or scoring goals or whatever. And so I've got to watch it because I've got a pretty competitive edge and I want my four-year-old, who is head and shoulders taller than everyone else, I want him to dominate. I want him to go out there and crush freaking skulls and score goals and just crush it. I gotta watch that because he's four and like, is that actually what I want? Like, do I really want a four-year-old little messy running around my house? Uh, No, I mean, maybe, I'd be kind of sick. But really my goal for my son, whether it's soccer or school, or when he's out at the playground, just all these places where he's outside my house, where he's being his own little person, my goal for him is that he would be strong and kind. Strong and kind. That's like a Holt family mantra. You hear us saying that all the time when, when uh, we drop the boys off for school or they're going to a soccer game or they're going to hang out with friends. I remind them, listen, Sam, Bear, one day Madeline Claire, You guys are my children and I love you and I want you to go out into the world and I want you to go and be strong and kind. I want you to be strong. I don't want you, I want you to have grit. I want you to be a gritty kid. A joke just formed in my mind about the gritty and I'm not gonna say it. I want my kids to have grit. I don't want them to wilt under pressure. I want them to stand for things. I want them to be strong. But I want them to use that strength for loving and serving other people. I want them to be kind. So I tell our kids, I want you to be strong and kind. That's my prayer for them. And Paul, in our passage tonight, he lays out that that is exactly the same instructions that he has for the Philippians. He opens it, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And in Greek, this translates better, exercise your citizenship worthy of the gospel of Christ. Meaning, this world's not your home. You're a citizen of heaven, a child of God. You're living in a land that's not right now. It's not yours. And so when you leave your father's house, when you're outside the home, let me explain to you how you're supposed to live. Let me explain how you're supposed to conduct yourself. 
And that's what we've got to see as well. Because if you're here and you're a Christian, you've got to know how to live and how to conduct yourself in the world. And just like me giving Bear and Sam instructions of, listen, like, you're a Holt. I love you. I want you to go and be strong and kind in the little preschool world that you're in. You all, as children of God, have to know, like, okay, I am one of God's children. That means that I must go out into the world and be someone who is strong and kind. And if you're not a Christian, you have all sorts of ideas and preconceptions about the ways that Christians handle themselves in the world, for good and for really bad. And tonight, I just want you to like table all that because maybe the way that you've seen Christians interact with you and interact with the world is not actually living up to what Paul says Christians are to be, strong and kind. So those are our two points tonight. Real complex, petty stuff, y'all. Be strong. So first, you're going to have to be strong. Because following Jesus leads to opposition, and under that opposition, you're going to want to crumble. Look with me at verse 30. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. So the Philippians saw that Paul, owning his faith, really believing like Jesus is king and he gets to be in charge of my life, Paul's owning that led to a lot of opposition for him. Case in point, he's in jail writing this. It led to a ton of opposition. And Paul's saying that that same conflict, that same opposition, you're facing it right now or you're going to face it. Do you see following Jesus as something that leads to conflict and opposition? Paul certainly does. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. You see, there's no point in saying that you believe someone if you're not willing to try and do all that they say to do. Example, um, if I say, hey, I can introduce you to the single greatest thing that the University of Tennessee dining has to offer. And then I explain that if you go to the dining hall and you get a 16 ounce cup and you fill half of said cup up with soft serve ice cream, and then you put about another quarter cup of milk, any milk that you want, you can do whole, you can do skim, chocolate, for God's sakes, don't do, don't do uh, 2%. That, that's just milk with an identity crisis. But <laughs> fill it up. And then with the room that's left, just mash a bunch of cookies and Oreos and things into that. And then begin stirring that mixture up until it's like a chunky cement-like mixture. And then put that thing into your mouth. <laughs> it is the single greatest thing that UT Dining has to offer. Do you believe me? Yes, of course you do. Of course you believe me. I'm a, I'm a pastor and like clearly a culinary expert. Some of you are probably wondering, is there a little rat under my hat directing all of my amazing ideas like ratatouille? Um, of course, you would say, I believe you. And then I would say, okay, if you believe me, then go try it. Right? There's no point in saying you believe someone or you believe in someone if you're not going to go and try and do all that they say to do. There's no point in saying you believe Jesus if you're not willing to try and do all that he says to do. And Paul knows that when you begin to follow Jesus, when you actually begin to obey him and do what he says to do, it's going to lead to opposition. There is always a clash that occurs when the kingdom of Jesus comes into contact with the kingdoms of this world. There is always a clash. Because Jesus and his ways will always challenge the ways of this world. 
his kingdom, it starts to expand in your life and your heart. As you believe in him, you trust him, you start to think like, okay, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to obey him in these things. The kingdom is spreading in your heart and in your life. And as it does so, it's coming into contact with the culture that you live in, namely the culture of the University of Tennessee. And when Christ's kingdom and the University of Tennessee, even though you think it's heaven, come into contact, it creates friction. And that friction leads to opposition. And so your life with Christ will clash with things in the culture that you find yourself in. I am a Kentucky fan. I love the cats. I graduated from the University of Kentucky. I love it. It shapes my loves. It shapes my identity. It shapes what I talk about. It shapes what I wear. This is a fraud. (laughs) And what happens? I live in the midst of the kingdom of Tennessee, and it creates a lot of friction and a lot of sadness Uh, because we get beat, and I have to do things like wear volverols and sit in a dunk tank in the middle of campus in cold weather and shiver like a... I don't want to go there. Right? It creates friction. Now, I think it's worth asking, what does that friction, what would that opposition look like for you all? 2023, University of Tennessee student. Because throughout history and throughout the rest of the world right now, that conflict, that opposition is very dramatic and easy to see. Today, 215 million Christians woke up to a reality where simply for claiming Christ as king and following him, they will face economic exclusion, uh, family rejection, physical assaults, arrest, imprisonment, and yes, even death. 215 million Christians wake up to that every single day, simply for following and obeying Jesus. But I don't think that this dramatic opposition is what you face for following Jesus. I do not, face the univer- I do not think that the University of Tennessee student faces the raised fist of opposition for following Jesus. Rather, I would argue you faced the raise eyebrow. Here's what I mean. If you take Jesus seriously in his commands of obeying your king, you might not face all that the 215 million Christians throughout the world are facing, but you will face exclusion, disdain. You will be thought of as foolish. You might find limits to your success. It's not the raised fist of opposition, it's the raised eyebrow. Let's look at a few of Christ's commands. Matthew 5, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Translation, be a person of integrity. Don't lie, don't cheat. And now at first, that sounds like something everyone's going to get behind, right? You can't have a society if everybody's cheating and not honest. But think for a second, it's Wednesday night, you're at the library, you're studying for an exam, getting ready for it with some other students from your class, and you find out that some students from your class have gone to the admin building, found your professor's office, climbed up into the ceiling, through the ceiling tiles, gone into the office, and found the exam that you're going to have. This literally happened when I was in college. The students (laughs) fell through the ceiling tiles, and the professor was in his office, don't do it. Bad idea. <laughs> but let's just say, it, let's just say, go cats. Uh, let's just say, <laughs> let's just say that that happens and it works out, okay? And the people you're studying with, they're like, hey, we've got all the questions for the exam tomorrow. We've got all the questions. We can, stu- we can cut all that other stuff we were going to study and just study to these questions. We'll do well in the exam. 
And you remember that Jesus has called you to be someone of integrity. And so you say, I can't do this. What are you going to face? You're going to face the raised eyebrow. Are you kidding me? This isn't even hardly cheating. You just, we already have the questions. You're going to have the same questions tomorrow. We just get to study in advance. Like, come on. Sorry, to believe in cheating. The raised eyebrow. Why would you do this? Why would you sabotage your success by not taking advantage of what's right in front of you? You're going to face the raised eyebrow. What about, um, it's Friday night, you're at a party, you're at Hannah's, I don't know, you're at the club, well, I don't know what you guys do. Okay, it's Friday night. <laughs> You've had a couple drinks, and uh, your friends start talking about how tonight is going to be a night that we are always going to, like, we're going to remember this night forever, it's going to be the best, we're going to go crazy, it's going to be a night that we're literally not going to be able to remember. <laughs> and you know that the Bible affirms that alcohol is actually a good thing. Side discussion, if you want to talk to me, like, it's a good thing. The Bible shows that it's a good thing. But it also says that drunkenness is a sin, so you say, I'm out. Um, I'll go with you guys, but, like, I'm cutting it off. Like, I'm done drinking tonight. What are you going to face? The raised eyebrow. You're no longer the party person, right? Like, you might get the reputation as, like, oh, man, you're not fun. You're not the fun one. You face the raised eyebrow. You're at work, you've been becoming better friends with someone, Uh, you're talking, you're getting into life, and it comes to the topic of your faith, what you believe. And you own like, yeah, I'm a Christian, that's what I believe. And your friend that you've been talking to, they have experience with Christianity, and so like they know in general what you believe, and they're like, do you really believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? That's so intolerant, so exclusive. Can you really believe God would be like that? It's the raised eyebrow. The biggest area of conflict has to be a biblical sexual ethic. Jesus says that your sexuality is a gift to be enjoyed between a husband and a wife in the covenant of marriage. And holding that ethic on a campus that promises unlimited sexual indulgence will draw a raised eyebrow. Holding that sexual ethic in a culture that says that the Christian sexual ethic is bigoted, It will draw disdain. It will draw rejection. It might even draw hatred. Or you just might hear like, hey, you're limiting yourself. Why would you not indulge and enjoy what everyone else is enjoying? The raised eyebrow. And in the face of this opposition, Paul says, be strong. Stand firm. And do not be frightened of anything. Hold fast to what you believe in. Paul has to tell us this for the same reason that Marcus Mumford sings the same in Hold On to What You Believe. The song is set in a city that uh, the lyric starts, breathe the plague of loving things more than their creator. Fascinating lyric. But then it goes on to, hold on to what you believed in the light when the darkness has robbed you of all your sight. Marcus knows that times of darkness will hit you when everything that you believed, everything that you say you believed is going to be challenged by a moment of opposition, whether from inside or from without, and you have to hold on to what you believe. But what, I mean, so far, I'm not telling you guys anything new. What in the world will keep you holding on to that? Marcus, what will keep us holding on to this, Paul? Verse 28, it is a clear sign of your salvation. You're standing fast, And holding to what you believe in the midst of opposition 
is a sign to you and to other people of your salvation. Now I want you to think about this. Temptation, opposition comes, and it would be so easy to give in, turn away from Jesus, give in to the world. And instead, you choose Jesus in his ways. You hold fast. Why would you do that? Well, you do it because you choose in that moment to actually cling to the belief that Jesus and his ways are truly better than what the world has to offer. And the present opposition is far outweighed by the experience of his goodness. All right? It's a miracle. You make it through that moment of opposition. But then on the far side, you look back at that moment of standing fast and you wonder, how in the world did I do that? And you have two options. You can say, because I'm a freaking stud. Don't do that. Or you look and you realize that there was nothing in you that can make you stand firm and cling to Jesus. And the only way you were able to stand fast is because Jesus has you. And he is working in you and shaping you. And you're holding fast. You're, you're staying strong. It's actually just a sign that Jesus has begun his work in you already, a work that will be completed in heaven. As C.S. Lewis says, you're not doing these things in order to be saved. You're not holding fast so that Jesus, like, accepts you. You're already saved. But because he has begun to save you already, not hoping to get to heaven as a reward for your actions, but inevitably wanting to act in a certain way because a first faint gleam of heaven is already inside you. When you stand fast, it's a sign that Jesus literally lives inside your heart and is building himself up out of you. That is amazing. If you doubt God's activity, God's work in this world, you can look and see these moments in your life where by a miracle, you stand fast and it's, my goodness, Jesus has me. And he's not letting me go. But your standing fast is also a sign to those who oppose you. It's a sign of salvation to them too. Think for a moment of whatever area it is that you are most tempted to compromise with the world, to turn from Jesus and believe that the ways of this world are actually better than what Jesus says, right? Whatever it is, be it indulging substances, uh, sexuality, Christ's claim to exclusive truth, whatever, okay? Figure out what it is you're most tempted towards. And I want you to really ask, is the world's vision of fill-in-the-blank thing actually something that's beautiful, that's true, that's leading to flourishing in this world? Do you all know what the number one searched term on Spotify is amongst your age group? Number one most searched term. Statistically, a ton of you guys have searched this today. Three-letter word, rhymes with mad, starts with S. Sad. Oh, that's, so, that's terrible. Single top term searched by Gen Z. Sad. Bloomberg put out an article with this title, Gen Z's summer music vibe. Sad. <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> Quote, Sadness is so widespread amongst youngsters, clearly written by a boomer, that the Center for Disease Control is now tracking it. Y'all are so sad that the CDC is tracking your sadness. 
That's wild. And the reason, the reason is because sadness is at least something that you can feel. Sadness is at least something you can feel. Sadness is at least something that's real in a way. Sounds a lot like my boy Posty. As Post Malone sings, give me something I can feel. Light a cigarette just so I can breathe. Give me something real. I would trade it all just to be at peace. Problem, throw a pill at it. Give me something I can feel. Whiskey lullaby just to fall asleep. Give me something, something real. Got everything, guess I'm hard to please. Give me something, something real. I would trade my life just to be at peace. Sad. In a world that screams at you to indulge every appetite and every whim of belief, because nothing is real, there is no truth, just what you make of it. That is going to produce sadness. And in the midst of that, holding fast to what you believe in the midst of this absolutely chaotic sadness that has gripped our culture, holding fast to what you believe is a signpost to the world around you that there is indeed a better way, a more ancient way, a way of trusting someone greater than you who loves you, and you may not understand all of his ways, but his ways are indeed good. And as you do that, you are being brought into something that is indeed real. And in the midst of just the chaotic sadness that Posty describes, to be someone who stands fast and stands firm is an amazing signpost to a world that is desperately spinning out of control. So hold fast to what you believe. It honors your king. It's a sign and it's an encouragement that he is indeed in you at work. And it's a sign to the world around you of something real, a living demonstration of God's kingdom in the midst of darkness. So be strong. That's Paul's first call to us. But he doesn't stop there. And it's so incredibly important to see where he goes next. It's like as soon as he finishes saying, be strong, in the next breath, he says, be kind. And this is why it's so important for us to get this. In our culture, there are many who claim that Christianity and Christians are being persecuted and opposed. And our world is addicted to this outrage. And so Christians join into the culture wars, this ritual of rage of just screaming at whoever's on the other side. And then they receive scorn and they run away screaming, Christians are persecuted. For example, last semester here on campus, uh, a group of men set up shop over at HSS Steps, uh, and they began preaching and teaching on a biblical sexual ethic. And predictably, this fired students up. And they begin yelling back and forth at one another, calling them names, and they just get into a big old fight. And I was standing at the top of the steps with some of the students in this room, and we were watching this play out, and we noticed that the dudes are wearing these, like, chest straps with video cameras on it, and we're realizing they're taking videos of everything that's happening, this fighting, and then they're loading those videos onto the interwebs with titles like, you know, I don't know, crazy stuff. Like, just getting into fights with college students over their crazy beliefs. Just portraying themselves as being persecuted and oppressed by college students for preaching a biblical sexual ethic. Is that the kind of friction that Paul has in mind? 
were these men being strong in the face of opposition, holding fast to their beliefs in the midst of opposition? Or were they just being jerks like everybody else? Merely pulling the ethics of Christ's kingdom and then using his ethics to manufacture a clash for the views. You see, it's supremely tempting to view this call to be strong and hold fast in a very worldly way. A way in which being faithful to Jesus is, the ma- is a manner of being the loudest voice and just trying to dominate whoever opposes you. And that's why Paul immediately follows his call to be strong with be kind. Chapter 2, verse 2. He says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That is a direct parallel from verse 27 just up above it. Point being, he's connecting strength and standing firm with what's about to follow. Chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Here's what follows. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Translation, when opposition comes and you stand firm in your beliefs, your call is to be kind to those who oppose you. When people oppose you for your beliefs in Jesus and your obedience to him, they are not the enemy. Rather, these are the very people that you are to, in humility, count as more significant than yourself. Those are who you should be looking out for their interests as much as you are looking out for your own. That is incredibly subversive. Paul is saying, hold fast to what you believe in and be kind to the point of self-sacrifice to those who oppose you, generous to those who oppose you, love those who oppose you. That is radical. No other philosophy or religion of the world says to do this. Only Jesus would have the audacity to call his followers to such an upside-down way of life. This is not how you build a religion. This is not how you build a movement, to be kind to the opposition. Okay, but very practically, what in the world does this look like? What does kindness and strength look like? Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he lays out the ethics of his kingdom, the stuff that you're supposed to hold fast to, ethics around money and divorce and religious practices and loving your enemy and sexuality. But right before he launches into all of these things, he gives something called the Beatitudes. Let me read them or just list them for you real quick. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn their sin. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those with pure hearts, the peacemakers. Then he concludes the list with, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus is saying, yes, you are going to be opposed for holding to and practicing what I call you to. But when that happens, you're supposed to be this kind of person, a beatitude person. Now, let me make it really concrete. And let's take the exact same thing that the UT campus GoPro preachers on HSS got everybody up in arms on, all right? A biblical sexual ethic, arguably the most controversial topic in our culture today. Why in the world am I going to do this on a Tuesday night? It's a bad idea. 
Every time this topic comes up with family, with friends, with students, even bringing it up in this room tonight, I feel a certain anxiety over how it's going to be received that I believe in a biblical sexual ethic. And that fear, that anxiety, is proof that this is one of the prime areas where Christ's kingdom conflicts with the values of our world. Namely, a biblical sexual ethic conflicting with our culture's ethic of unlimited sexual expression. Christ's kingdom confronts every single culture. This just happens to be where it confronts ours. But let me show you the point I'm trying to make by running the Bible's sexual ethic and how we hold to that, being strong, holding to it, through the grid of the Beatitudes. I'm going to borrow what I say here from a mentor of mine who made this point several years ago. All right? Now, if reviled, if scorned, hated for holding to a biblical sexual ethic, let it be while you are being this kind of person. You cannot take Christ's ethics without also taking Christ's postures that he just listed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I enter this discussion fully aware of my own spiritual poverty in this area. I have a profoundly broken and disordered sexuality and am in need of desperate measures of God's grace and redemption. Blessed are those who mourn. I don't just see my broken sexuality, but I am grieved by it. I weep and am angered by my sins. The smallest lust in my heart angers me far more than the brokenness out in the world. Blessed are the meek. That poverty in spirit and mourning yields a meek, a humble, a gentle disposition that engages in this crazy debate. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I long for a righteous sexuality in myself before I turn to the world. My chief concern is my own righteousness, and I will not nurse secret sins while condemning the world. Blessed are the merciful. I'm not condemning and judging others. That is Jesus' job and Jesus' job alone. I require so much mercy that all I can do is extend a prodigious mercy to all others, including those with beliefs and practices that I disagree with. Blessed are the pure in heart. My aim is not to win a debate. My aim is that my heart would be pure, wholly devoted to the love of my Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers. I want peace. I weep over the deep divide in our culture in this area, and I long for restored relationships. Reconciliation is what I want, and so I make the first step towards those on the other side of whatever aisle you're on. Now, if I do that, if the Beatitudes, this kindness, structures and governs our engagement and posture to the world, and then I'm hated by those on one side for holding to a biblical sexual ethic, or I'm hated by those on the other side for loving those that they would disagree with, so be it. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of Jesus. Do you see this? Do you see the kindness? Holding strong to Christ in his way, but doing it with a posture that Christ gives us, a posture of kindness. Strong and kind. Now, how in the world can you be that kind of person? Because after just reading everything that I wrote today, I am overwhelmed by how far I fall from someone who is strong and kind. 
If you're like me, you see Paul's call to be strong and kind. It's compelling, yeah, but my gosh, I'm the worst at it. I fear the opinion of man so much that when I pull out my Bible in the student union, I get a little bit of like, oh, I don't know what the tail next to me is going to be thinking. Fearful, not strong. I fear what people are going to think of my beliefs. I fear the repercussions. And kindness, come on. I know my heart. It is so selfish. I'd rather demonize and make the other side an enemy. Those who disagree with me, I'd rather view them as horrible people. I will not love them. Are you all failures too? Can I get an amen? You don't have to, you don't have to do that. <clears throat> you are failures of this. Chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, be strong and kind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus was strong. Jesus felt has, felt, held fast to his convictions, and he obeyed the Father perfectly, even to the point of death on the cross. And Jesus was kind. He loved those who opposed him. He prayed for those who killed him, even as he hung there, stretched upon that limb. Jesus is the embodiment of strength and kindness. Look at him. He's strong because he stays on the cross. But why does he stay there? Because of his kindness towards you. Because though you... Someone who was his enemy, you put him there. He stayed there because of his commitment to kindness and love of you. And so for us failures, we've got to think of the disciple Peter here. Peter's the guy who's always trying to be strong. He's always the first disciple to speak up. He's the one who tells Jesus, Jesus, we're not going to let you die, man. I've got your back. I'm Peter. I'm strong. Nobody's going to kill you. And the first time that Peter's faith is ever going to cost him anything. The first time he really needs to be strong, he fails miserably. Isn't that encouraging? Fails miserably. Jesus is sitting in the house of the high priest, uh, a makeshift courtroom for his trial, and Peter sits outside in the courtyard trying to get a glimpse of what's going on with Jesus. And someone asks him, hey, don't you know Jesus? Don't you know him? And Peter responds three times, no, I don't know that man. He fails miserably, miserably, no strength, no kindness. But while he sits in a puddle of his own failure, he watches Jesus in all his glorious strength walk by. And he watches him stand there and get condemned having the strength to never speak up and make a defense for himself. He watches Jesus get beaten, crucified, killed, and then buried. Perfect strength and kindness, for he did this for Peter. When Peter meets Jesus again, Jesus' first act is to restore Peter, to extend his forgiveness to him. So you, University of Tennessee student who's here, sitting in a puddle of your failures, to be strong and kind. Look at Jesus with Peter. He is strong and kind for him. He loves you. Do you want to learn to be strong and kind? You need to look at Jesus. 
You need to see him as Peter saw him, someone who remains strong to the end for you. Not a generic you, but like you. You're not even looking at me. Not a generic you, you. Jesus is strong to the end, strong to the end for you. Someone who does everything out of interest for you. And you have to look at him, and you have to look at him, and you have to look at him, until what you see becomes beautiful to your heart. And it's only in seeing his perfect strength and perfect kindness for you that you will ever become someone who is strong and kind to the world that so desperately needs people like that. Let's pray. RUF is a community of students that is trying to learn how to love God, love people, and love the University of Tennessee. The way that we do that is to create safe places for students of all types and backgrounds to process the story of Jesus and to learn how to integrate their lives into his story. For more information, follow us on Instagram at UTK underscore RUF or visit our website at www.ruf.org slash UTK.